Hi, this is Ideas on Craft, a podcast about ideas on growth, progress, and prosperity. Andrew Nevin returns to the show and he certainly needs no introduction. Welcome back, Andrew. Great to be here. Thank you, Toby. Today, we are going to be talking about the world after this crisis, and we'll see what are the various implications. But where I want us to start is the nature of the crisis itself. At least on the economic side, it's something that affected both supply and demand. And one thing from my observation is it seems the global economy, different sectors, is a lot more connected now than 10, 15, 20 years ago. That's the nature of globalization, right? So do you think that policymakers sort of underestimated these network effects because it spiraled into multiple sectors? Well, I think that observers or, say, economists, for example, in February didn't really understand how connected everything is, even though we're supposed to be economists. So there were people in in middle or even late February who were projecting that the impact, economic impact of the pandemic might be a reduction in global growth from 4% to 2%, 4% to 1%. But you know, they didn't really think about the fact that everyone's spending is someone else's income. And when you lock down several billion people around the world, then that has an immediate cataclysmic effect on the economy. But they also didn't think about the fact that they, they knew but didn't really connect the dots. As you say, Toby, on the globalization, if if someone stops consuming in one locality, it's not just that locality that suffers economically. It ripples all around the world almost immediately because we have so many complex supply chains, whether it's in manufacturing cars or semiconductors or in food, for example. So I think all of this, to some extent, caught people off. It shouldn't have, but caught people by surprise. But I think now everyone understands how interconnected the global economy is. On the supply chain issues, what are the likely bigger costs down the line going to be? We are seeing figures that food prices might rise up to 18% globally. We are seeing rises in energy prices, whereas some other sectors are in a sort of deflationary cycle with low prices. So what are the long-term and the medium-term costs to this disruption? Well, I think that people realized that the way we had built the supply chain was highly vulnerable to a disruption or a shock. So you had these highly optimized supply chains just in time. So you were keeping no inventory, moving all the parts long distances. And it's just not a very resilient system because if one part of the chain breaks, then the whole system breaks. I mean, to give an example from another disaster, when we had the tsunami in Fukushima a few years ago, I think 2011, Um, there was breaks in the whole global auto supply chain because of things made in Fukushima. But I don't think the world took the lessons from that. I think this time people will take the lessons from it and they'll start to shorten up supply chains, build more resiliency into it, produce things closer to home, particularly things connected to medical care and to food. But the implication of that is those items are going to go up in cost because the supply chains were optimized to produce things at the absolute lowest cost when everything worked well. If you now need to build more resiliency and more localization into it, inevitably things are going to cost somewhat more. 
And uh, because you've built redundancy in the system, 18% sounds, I'm not sure how it was estimated, but it sounds like kind of a reasonable starting point for thinking about the impact. So, of course, if, if prices of food and medical goods go up, people are going to consume less of them. And it will have an impact on people's income and an impact on economies all over the world. If we look at what the world will look like when we finally reopen, and I know different countries are having that conversation in their own way, according to the political realities of those societies. I know some companies are going to be risk averse. I know consumers are going to be reluctant in some industries. So in your estimation and your observation, what are the sectors that are most exposed to the post-COVID behavioral changes, so to speak? No, I think that's a very good question. I mean, I think people have realized now we're very unlikely to have a V-shaped recovery. As I said, in February, there wasn't a recognition of the total economic cataclysm, as we discussed. In March, I would say what happened was there was still this belief that there would be V-shaped recovery. So the virus would pass through countries and then people would go back to normal. I think we realize now that there's likely to be at least some medium term and maybe even longer term impacts of, of it that are going to affect a lot of different industries and overall economies. So to begin with, we already know coming out of lockdown, you don't come out of lockdown immediately. You have a very slow opening of services, service by services. But it's not even the legal framework that really determines what's going to happen. I mean, the, the reality is it's consumer behavior, it's individual behavior. So you have Consumers, many of whom around the world, including Nigeria, have lost their job. They're broke. They're not interested in taking risks. They may have their job, but they feel like it, depending on the way the economy evolves, that their job is possibly at risk. So you have very reluctant consumers from an economic viewpoint. And at the same time, you have reluctant individuals from a health viewpoint while they're venturing out. I mean, some people, as we see in the United States, are kind of aggressively challenging the lockdown provisions. I think most people certainly in Canada and the UK and in Europe, are going to continue to voluntarily limit their activities despite what the government says. So when you take that in totality, we're not going to have this immediate bounce back to the previous economic level of activity. Now, what's going to be affected? Well, I think the things that have essentially disappeared during the COVID-19 economic crisis are going to have a very slow return. So for example, the most obvious one is international air travel. I mean, it's really hard to see what the path is to that back. Very slow opening. People are going to be reluctant to go country to country. Countries still have a lot of restrictions on opening their uh, borders, international air borders. Of course, Nigeria's and many other countries remain closed at the moment. And of course, bringing it back in that way means continued losses for the airline industry. And even there's talk, I'm sure people listening have heard about taking out the middle seat on a plane. Well, that also increases the cost by about 50% per seat mile as well. So all of those things are going to conspire to make international air travel come back slowly. But closer to home in many countries, I think, is going to be the impact on commercial office space. So, of course, what's happened is many companies that were resistant to people working from home, and while people enjoy being at the office and the camaraderie and the teamwork when they're there, they also there's a cost to going to the office in terms of time, in terms of money, in terms of tiredness, effectiveness. And a lot of people have found themselves very productive at home. Uh, I know myself, I'm working harder than ever. I think, Toby, you're working harder than ever, probably getting more done. So while I don't think people are going to not go to the office, I think we're going to have a new way of working for many office and knowledge 
knowledge workers where they are at home one day, two days, three days, some cases five days a week. So then what happens, of course, is that there's less demand for commercial real estate. That's already starting to ripple through in places like New York and London. There's less demand for the transportation. So transport for London that runs the tube and the buses realizes it's going to be under pressure. There's less demand for the coffee shop that's next to the office. I mean, if you took out, say, 30 percent of the the commute, um, you would take out 30 percent of the demand, at least for all of these services. And at the same time, there's already been a push in Europe that a lot of the land that's allocated for cars moving is going to go over to bicycles, go over to pedestrian walkways. And of course, if you ride a bicycle, you're not consuming fuel. So that's another set of industries that's really going to be affected in that. I think things like hotels, because one of the things I think will come out is we realize that if we're going to go for a one or two day meeting with clients or with business collaborators, we can now do that virtually. And the last business trip I went was March 9th uh, to Accra for the day. So just got up early, took a plane, used fuel, used transport on both ends, went to see the client for two, two and a half hours perhaps and flew back. People aren't going to do that anymore. So all of that's going to reduce aggregate demand in all of these things. So those are a few of the industries that will be directly impacted. And then, of course, that's going to ripple through because there's less income. So every other consumption good is going to reduce as well. Let's break it down a bit further, Andrew. You talked about the nature of the recovery. And I mean, here's what I think. I know we are projecting that recovery is not going to be as fast as perhaps maybe the last crisis. And even that took a while. But isn't that, and here's my sense about that, isn't that going to be about the continued supply restrictions that companies and governments and the regulatory environment are still going to be putting in place to prevent the spread of this virus? Because, I don't know, if we talk about consumer behavior, I think there's an old economic theory that that identifies that there's a lag in consumers factoring their income into their consumption behavior. And one data point to that was the Yellowstone National Park. You know, the park was reopened and lots of people showed up. And there are the figures about people using parks. And I mean, even in Lagos, on the day of the reopening, everywhere was filled with crowds. So isn't the slow recovery going to be due to a continuance of the supply side restrictions? Well, I, I think that's a good question. I mean, I, it, you know, it's hard to know just one day the Yellowstone Park experience. I'm not, I'm not surprised that it was crowded because if you think about it, almost every other entertainment venue is still locked down. So there aren't sports events, there aren't concerts, you can't go to a restaurant. So you have, as I said, these partial liftings of lockdown. You have one thing that's available that you go do the one thing. Everyone goes does it and it looks like it's it's crowded. But I don't think it necessarily means, let's say we're two, three months from now in the United States, everything is open, restaurants are open. Are you going to get all the volume back? And as I said, I think there's a number of factors why you're not going to get it right away. I mean, one reason is because a lot of people are broke, right? I mean, they've, they've lost their job or they're concerned about losing their job. And the United States, you've had, what, 38 million people lose their job in about eight weeks. Not all of those people are sort of bottom of the pyramid in the U.S. Many of them are, are engineers or companies like Uber, I believe, uh, have, have lost their jobs. So you've got even high income earners who are losing their jobs or worried about it. So I don't think they're going to go back immediately. I mean, I take your 
your point, and we were all taught at, uh, in our economics class about the permanent income hypothesis, but that is based on the expectation that you've got a permanent income. As I said, if you've got a fear factor that you're going to lose your income, then there's another behavior, which is immediately you kind of cut back your consumption. So you have the potential for people who are worried about their income to cut back the, your consumption. You also have people who are just reluctant to go out. So now, I myself am not that young. I mean, I'm not going to stay in the house completely, but I can tell you, you know, I'm not in a high-risk group, but I'm not in a low-risk group. I would be reluctant to go to a restaurant for quite a while until we see. So if you take the combination of people for economic reasons and for health reasons that are cutting back their consumption, I think that we'll have not just the supply uh, shock, we'll also have the demand shock on that. So, I mean, I think it would be if we came out of this with no health issues in six months and people back to their old patterns of consumption, would be wonderful. But I don't think that any business globally can really, really bank on that. And particularly, as I said a little bit earlier, I think businesses that depend on international travel are going to have to be really, really struggling. So you think about places like Italy or Spain or Thailand, where the biggest industry is actually foreign tourists. It's a long road back for those industries. Now, that may come back, but I think that the commercial real estate and the impact on commuting patterns is likely to be permanent. I think once we go to large classes of office workers, professional workers working from home for, as I said, maybe 30% of the time, 40% is just a guess for me. I don't think we're ever going to go back. And I think you'll see the major cities continue to try to become more cycle friendly, more pedestrian friendly, and less and less cars on the road. So that the, the reduction in consumption of gasoline or foil the reduction in, as I said, all the coffee shops, the lunch shops around, the reduction in the fares on the public transport, and the reduction in the amount of office space used, those are going to be permanent. Interesting. Let's talk about possible government responses here. Again, I remember the last crisis, the big issue then was, oh, just get income into people's hands so that they can spend. But given the nature of this crisis, is the appropriate response just to do structural reforms? And I'll give you an example. You talked about new ways of moving. People have talked about open here dining. Now, to do that, you have to rebuild some cities. You have to do planning. You have to redesign a couple of things. Are those really the priorities for government to spend on as opposed to you know, some people are saying that families, households still need income in their pockets. So just do universal basic income and stuff like that. What are your thoughts? Well, I think for developed nations, we're running a very interesting experiment. I mean, at the time, there's been really for maybe, let's say, 20 years, a debate about how far you could stretch public finances before they broke and there was something emerging called modern monetary theory which essentially said a sovereign nation can borrow really an infinite amount effectively to finance things and people traditional economists dismissed this as being after the financial crisis in 2008-2009 there was a huge amount spent uh, through monetary mechanisms um, on this and quantitative easing what this crisis has done is really broken open the fiscal floodgates and really the debate is raging whether this is going to have any uh, impact on inflation or collapse of currency that you traditionally think about on that. So so in this regard, I think that you're likely to see governments, at least for now, given low interest rates or negative interest rates, try both, right? So if you take the UK for a minute, 
I mean, they should be investing in transforming London, maybe other parts of the UK, but London I know best, to be more in line with the kind of city we want to see in five or ten years. Less commuting, less traffic on the road, more bike-friendly, and they should be investing in that. But at the same time, I mean, I think that people are all Keynesians now. They realize you can't have... I think in the UK, the number I saw is 8 million people have lost their job, which if 38 million lost in the United States, 8 million makes sense in the UK. So if you have 8 million people lose their job, then you don't have any any choice but to have some kind of income support. So the jury is out. As you get these extraordinary budget deficits, is this something that's going to create problems? Now, one difference, people might say we had the same thing in the Second World War, the UK and its allies. So you had a, a massive spending, whatever it took during the wartime period. And then after the wartime period, you had a large stock of debt, which turned out not to be a problem because you had rapid economic growth. But the one difference between now and then is that uh, the population's aging very rapidly. So the working age population in the UK is stable or going down. It may be stabilized not because of birth rates there, but because of immigration. But it's certainly going down in Italy, Spain, Russia, Germany, etc. So the jury's still out. But the short answer to your question is I think people are going to be spending on both and should be investing in new ways. The other thing I'll just relate this to is I definitely think maybe I'm too much of an optimist, but I do think this is going to have a positive impact on the climate change agenda. I don't think we can have this kind of health crisis and the impact it's had on individuals and on the global community and not have more focus on climate change. Obviously, having reduced commuting helps a little bit with the climate change, greenhouse gases directly, but I think there's going to be a lot more debate and policy action that said as we adjust to post-COVID world, both health-wise but also the way people think, part of that thinking is going to be a bigger emphasis on environmental issues and sustainability and also just because the younger people are very interested in this issue and and the younger people are becoming the older people, so we're moving in that direction. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned climate. I've seen some estimates that say that if we comply with various proposals and regulations surrounding climate change, we may see a contraction in global GDP of about 5% by 2050. I mean, even this crisis, and who knows what's going to happen in the future, is that a cost we can bear welfare-wise? Well, it's it's hard to know what the alternative is. I mean, if you think about the people who are victims of climate change, sub-Saharan Africa is right at the top of the list, right? So you have more unstable climate, so you have less predictable rainfall, and so you have lower yields in the crops, you have increased movement of the Sahara Desert um, south, which, and of course, some people make the claim some of the security issues that we're having in Nigeria have to do with that and the fact that Lake Chad has shrunk by so much so much over the years. So in a sense, I'm not sure what the alternative is to addressing this. And what's the point of measuring GDP if it's not helping human welfare? I don't think we're going to have any choice but to address the climate issue. But I think that the difference is that it's just it's going to become even more politically acceptable or mainstream I think, for the developed economies. I mean, even in the United States, if you actually poll people, leave aside all of the partisan politics at the moment, if you actually poll people, most people consider this an important issue. Most people consider there needs to be something done about it. But you also have, a little bit like COVID-19 in general, you have also individual consumers changing their behavior. So one of the largest contributors to climate uh, problems, of course, is our consumption of meat. 
So I'm not sure if people, many people know this, but my understanding is that cows, because they emit greenhouse gases, if cows were a country, they'd be the third largest emitter of greenhouse gases. It's extraordinary. You know. But are we going to reduce our production of meat? There's been no legislation about it, but I think in the UK, something like 25%, please don't quote me in case I'm wrong, but 25% of young people are effectively vegetarians or vegans, which is extraordinary change in a number of years. So, no, I, I mean, I'm not worried that addressing climate change is going to end up damaging the economy. I think not addressing climate change is going to end up damaging the humanity. Okay, still looking at the post-crisis world and how it's going to be, let's talk about inequality. Yeah, working from home, has become popular, I imagine it's not going to go away after the crisis. A lot of companies are going to digitize their business models as much as possible. You talked about commercial real estate and how there will be less demand for space. But looking at the way cities work, the agglomeration effect, the movement of tacit knowledge and how people network, are we not going to see increased inequality. Now, what I mean is this. Company executives, highly knowledgeable experts, I mean, they are still going to find ways to meet, physically, network, and all that. And a vast number of the workforce will be left out of that for safety reasons, of course. So, are we not going to see increased inequality? Yeah, I think you've hit on a very critical issue coming out of this for all of us. And um, I think it's fair to say, I mean, there's a common saying, certainly in Canada, everyone knows I'm Canadian, um, that we're all in this together. But the truth is, it's not quite accurate. If you look at what's happened in the lockdown in developed countries, you have well-paid professionals who are now working from home. They're still continuing to get paid. Their spending has gone down, so they've affected other people's income. They find they're more productive, and they're not at risk because they're not mixing in the population. So for these sorts of people, the crisis, yes, it's it's been a serious issue, but for many of them, they're quite comfortable, if you let's, let's put it that way. Whereas you then have people who, in developed countries, have essential jobs, which include working food service industry. I think people have seen globally the impact of meatpacking plants, the spread of disease, people that drive trucks, that do deliveries, the frontline people like the policemen, people who transport workers, and they have been disproportionately affected medically by this crisis in Certainly, I can't speak for every European country, but in the United States, it's very, very clear that the predominance of victims are, are from lower income groups. So we've come into this crisis. We've already got inequality you know, much higher than decades before within countries. And it doesn't matter whether it's developing or developed. India has a similar problem. China has a similar problem. The UK, US, Nigeria. And all this crisis has done in a way on that issue is exacerbated. So I think as we start to slowly come out of this crisis, I think there's going to have to be a real debate about this issue and whether there's a pushback. I mean, there's obviously been in the West sort of pushback the last few years thinking about income inequality. I mean, the headlines around the total wealth controlled by billionaires, for example, the 1% movement, things like that. So there has been more and more debate about what kind of society do we want. 
I think that coming out of COVID-19, we're going to find in the developed Western economies, this debate really comes to the fore. And I, again, I, I actually, this one I'm less certain about than climate change. I don't know which way it's going to go. I hope it goes in a way that we adopt policies that address income inequality in a more progressive way in the West, in the developed part of the West. For Nigeria, I think the situation is a bit different. I do think that I hope we come out of this with uh, more of a measurement. Sometimes we kind of celebrate GDP, even if incomes are highly unequal or getting more unequal. So what's the point of having GDP growth if all of the GDP growth is going in the Nigerian context, the top 5% or the top 1% or the top 0.01%? What I hope is that we have more of a debate around measuring around sustainable development goals. So those, to me, really capture what is important for a nation like Nigeria. And that's what we should be measuring, not so much the GDP growth. So I think we could have slower GDP growth or even stop measuring to be a, take an extreme view on it. But as long as we were having you know, reduction, hunger, reduction in poverty, good education, clean water and sanitation, life under the ocean, livable cities, all of those things that make up the sustainable development goals, that's what we should focus on. But as I said, I'm not, I'm, it's just a wish on my part to coming out of this crisis that we're more focused on having well-being better distributed in every country around the world. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that idea because I just mentioned you in a Twitter thread around that discussion. So let me push you a bit on that point. Is GDP really incompatible with these measures? That, that's one. Secondly, is it really possible to have these targets or go after these targets policy-wise without a sustained and fast GDP growth the same way East Asia had? No, I think that's a very good question. And I think that Let's, let's say for Nigeria for a moment. I think that we need to have GDP growth in Nigeria. I mean, we need, I guess the way I would put it is, and we've said for years we need to grow at least six to eight percent. I'd like even higher to alleviate poverty. Of course, this morning, I believe, the, I'm not sure why they did it on a holiday in Nigeria, but the National Bureau of Statistics announced that the growth rate for Q1 was about 1.9 percent annualized. Uh, yeah. which is disappointing, but not unexpected. And of course, Q2 is going to be negative and Q3 is going to be negative. So not really new news in the context of the economic damage from the pandemic. So I think for a nation like Nigeria, that we need to pay attention to both. But there's no point in having GDP growth if we're having increasing poverty, if we're having increasing hunger, if we don't have quality education. And the balance right now is... of the measurements around GDP and 5% of it's around SDG goals. So we have a announcement this morning by uh, Dr. Calais over at uh, Statistics Bureau, and it's front page everywhere in the nation. If the special advisor to Excellency Governor Samuel Olo came out and said something about the special advisor for SDGs said something about SDGs, I'm not sure it would necessarily even make the news. So I think we need more of a balance in how we go after that. Now, that said, I think for developed nations, they need to go a bit further. I don't think GDP is there's much value in additional GDP. I think developed nations would be better off focusing on whatever fundamental well-being metrics they were trying to put forward. And so let me give you... A simple example. So in the U.S., GDP per capita is uh, 62,000 U.S. dollars a year, if I remember right. And in Canada, it's $46,000 a year. So big gap in GDP. Yet in Canada, the average life expectancy, I believe, is 83 years and the United States is 79 years. So despite the fact that the GDP in Canada is some 
15 or 20% less, Canadians are living a lot longer. And that just shows you that the relationship between GDP and well-being is not so strong. I mean, if you look at the number two nation in the world in terms of education by what the OECD calls the PISA standards, so this measures, I think, reading mathematics and science for 15-year-olds. The number two nation in the world by education is Estonia. Well, Estonia has a GDP per capita of $23,000 a year. So here you have a nation that has about a third of the GDP per capita in the United States, and yet it's able to deliver quality education. So the relationship between GDP and delivery of what matters to people in developed nations is not that tight. So I think for developed nation, they should be moving away from GDP as a metric faster than us. But even for Nigeria, there needs to be more of a balance between kind of an SDG or sustainable development goal lens and a GDP lens. Interesting. I hope we explore that subject further because I'm, I'm interested. Now, let's look at some of the geopolitical consequences, Andrew. One issue that immediately comes to mind is protectionism. What are your predictions around that area? Are we going to see increase or decrease or just the continuance of the status quo? I know U.S. and China are still going at each other. Well, I think there's going to be a decoupling, right? I mean, it's partially because in some ways it's something that the President Trump, but even the Democrats can agree on. And if we go back a little bit in history to the Clinton era, I mean, the Clinton era is billed as kind of golden era economically for the United States. You had the fall of the Soviet Union, the Berlin Wall came down, and there was this idea of the United States being the only superpower. But behind the scenes, what was happening economically was that the lower middle class in the United States was really losing ground. But that was masked a lot by the fact that manufacturing was moving to China, no safety concerns, no environmental concerns, low wage rates. So the price of consumer goods for Americans came down a lot. And that really politically, you realize now what it meant was that people didn't realize that you had this declining living standards so much for the lower middle class in the United States. So you've got these tighter and tighter integrations of the supply chain, but you also got a hollowing out. And I hate to say I agree with President Trump because there's very few things, but I spoke about this. I lived in China for 10 years. I used to speak about this to American audiences, that what was going to happen was you were going to hollow out the American manufacturing capability and you were going to regret it. And in effect, the United States handed made China the world's largest economy by PPP terms. And, and I really think you know, the Americans, it's really where they are is their own fault. But I do think we're at a point where you're going to see both because the resilience issues we talked about earlier, but also for these geopolitical issues, a decoupling of the United States and China. We've got all the controversy about Huawei. I think what's going to also be very critical, though, is what happens to Western Europe, right? And of course, Trump presidency has really driven a wedge in that relationship. You would naturally think that there was going to be decoupling, Western Europe and the United States and Canada would continue to sort of share very tight bonds, and they, those have been frayed. Now, for us in Africa, it does create some issues. I mean, I think what we've always said, I've said publicly, is Africa needs to have good economic relations with all parts of the world. Africa is large enough. The things it wants to do with North America, with Europe, with the Middle East, with India, with China, and I continue to view that. But the Huawei issue for example, highlights how challenging this might be because if Huawei is under sanction in the United States and a MTN in Nigeria buys Huawei equipment for the upgrade to 5G, that immediately makes them ineligible to you know, do business with the states, creates problems for Nigeria. So I think it, the way this evolves is going to be really problematic. And I think that this particular tension 
because of the nature of the virus has really brought forward the COVID-19, the China virus. The, the nature of this virus has really brought forward some of these conflicts. And of course, it's coming in an election year. And we can all see what President Trump is doing with it. So I'm quite concerned about the, the next few years geopolitically. That said, though, if you go back to the resiliency argument that we talked about at the beginning, it is not a bad thing for supply chains to be somewhat decoupled globally, just from a resiliency for a food security for an individual nation, health security for an individual nation, just a stronger system not to have these stretched supply chains around the globe. Yeah, but on that note, somehow, or sometimes most of the arguments around or the points around that can feel a bit like the illusion of control, at least to me anyways. Because sometimes I think policymakers and analysts pretend that we know how some of these patterns are going to emerge. I mean, like, we know how China became the largest supplier of X goods to the world. And now that we have the COVID-19 crisis and backlash against China, there can be a deliberate design of global supply chain. I'm a bit skeptical of that. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's a good question. I guess it goes back to whether individual companies shorten up their supply chains because of this resiliency argument. I mean, it's difficult to put in an overall regulatory framework. It is that illusion. I mean, economics naturally takes over. So, But I think at an individual company level, I hope that bigger companies recognize that when you've got such tight long supply chains, you are at risk for a disruption on that. So I take your point. But um, but certainly the United States is making all these noises that they want to decouple as much as they can from China. And we may see some legislative moves or policy moves from the Trump administration literally within the next few weeks. But what if Trump loses the election in November? Well, as I said, I think this is one issue where there's some alignment, right? Because, I mean, the Democrats didn't do a great job of actualizing it, but in, in theory, they should be wanting to see the incomes of the lower middle class go up in the United States. And uh, if you force manufacturing back, even if it's at a higher cost in the United States, you may have some loss of income in the upper incomes, but some gain of income in the bottom of American pyramid, I'll, I'll say. So uh, I, I could see this being one policy that uh, if it was President Biden, that he doesn't necessarily reverse. Another issue that's come up is um, some analysts think we are seeing, not particularly due to this COVID-19 crisis, that we've been seeing the collapse of the U.S.-led global order in the last couple of years. I know people like Ian Bremer, Peter Zian have talked about that. And again, in the last couple of years, we've seen an increase in nationalism. America certainly is becoming more isolationist. What are the implications of this new world order, so to speak, for trade particularly? I'm very worried about trade. Well, I think that, again, you go back to this period, you know, in the sort of 90s and, and 2000s, as I said the U.S. let China become this kind of global powerhouse, and the Chinese have taken this very strategically. So it's not a big surprise that China is so powerful economically, and other countries are growing, that relatively the United States would lose its influence. And I think the United States, in a sense, was not strategic enough back in that period, the 1990s and the, and the 2000s. You know, part of it is just historically, if you go back at the end of the Second World War, the United States 
was 50% of the world's productive capacity. There's a belief in the United States. Inside the United States, it was hard for them to believe that they would no longer, that they would always have this hegemony over the world. And in fact, um, you're probably too young to remember this, but when Goldman Sachs came out, I think in 2006, seven, they said that, that by 2048, China would be a bigger economy than the United States. 2048. And people said that was, Americans said that that was impossible. And of course, now China's economy, at least in purchasing power terms, purchasing power parity terms, is already bigger than the United States in absolute terms by 2022, 2023, which is extraordinary. So I mean, we all know at the end of the day, your military power and influence stems ultimately from your economic power. So it's not a big surprise that we're having this shift. And as I said, I blame the Americans. But in the 90s, they let this happen because they saw the collapse of the Soviet Union. They were the only superpower. It was hard to believe that in such a short period of time, they would be rivaled. But the reason in this particular administration, at least in my view and many other commentators with my views say the same thing, of course, with Trump, he's deliberately gone out to sabotage the existing alliances and, and constructs, both global constructs, obviously the WHO and the UN and groups like that, but also NATO, our relationship, I'm Canadian, but the relationship between the United States and NATO allies, between Western European allies with Australia. So you had President Trump damage relationship with friends that share a lot with the United States and yet increased relationships with uh, well, China to begin with until the COVID-19 with Russia, with uh, Brazil, which doesn't share the same values at the same time. So all of this is creating all sorts of fractures, which is very worrisome. So I, you know, I don't have a very warm feeling about the development of geopolitical situation over the next five to 10 years. I think it's going to continue to be chaotic. I hope we don't go into some kind of disaster scenario or armed conflict on a scale that we don't even want to imagine, but it's a very worrying period. There are two things that I want to talk about in that area. One is about soft power. Should America really abandon its role, I mean, for whatever political reasons domestically now, should America really abandon its role as the de facto global leader. And there's a reason why I say this. If you're going to alienate China or blame China or talk tough about some of the consequences, we know that to actually even get these measures to be effective, you need a coalition of other countries. I mean, Australia recently mobilized around 62 countries on pushing for accountability in finding the origin of the coronavirus. And my sense looking at that is America should be doing that, not pulling out of the WHO and saying, oh, we don't want anything to do with this or that. It's not perfect. The neoliberal post-war order was not perfect, but I'm more positively inclined towards its push for accountability, democratization, more openness, as opposed to Chinese-dominated world where there are no rules, no ethics. What are your feelings about that? Well, I think that, um, I mean, I'm in the camp that thinks that soft power is a good thing. I mean, if you want to project around the world and you can establish a strong basis for soft power, that's a lot easier to do than to a you know, hard power or military presence, which isn't so effective in today's world. So if I was the one with the soft power, I wouldn't want to give it up so easily. And of course, you know, I've said on the show four times I'm Canadian. I'll say it again. I'm 
Canadian and in Canada has no military presence, really. Uh, and yet we have quite a lot of uh, soft power because of our values, because of what we project, because of our immigrant culture, our tolerance. I mean, look at the country that in a way may have the most soft power per capita on the planet right now is, is New Zealand. You have the fantastic prime minister who's done an incredible job overall, an incredible job during this crisis. It's such a high brand value for New Zealand. They can contribute to getting things done, even as a nation of five million people around there. Whereas the United States, with all its GDP wealth and with all its huge population, is having a harder and harder time getting it. So I wouldn't have wanted to squander the soft power as Donald Trump has done. And of course, this is obviously a raging debate in Washington, but I'm in the camp that said this is a loss to the United States. And you know, I grew up near the United States. As a child and young adult, always welcomed the stabilizing force of the United States on global affairs. It's just disheartening to see where we're going. And, and I personally, I'll say on this podcast, I lived in China for 10 years. I don't want to see the most powerful country in the world be a one-party dictatorship with no accountable elected officials. That, for me, would be a, a terrible outcome. So I'm very concerned about the loss of soft power in the United States. I think it's been quite public that the European allies are dismayed about it, um, looking at the, the loss of influence in the United States. And I genuinely hope that there's some sort of change there, that the U.S. comes back and gets its soft power. And I think that President Trump, I don't have any great study on this, but just for all the places I've lived and time I've been in this world, it seems to me it's economically beneficial to have soft power. I don't believe it's a drain. President Trump says we lose to this country, we lose to this country, we lose to this country. That just doesn't make any economic sense to it. You gain so much from having soft power, from having influence, from being able to shape things without necessarily going into hard conflict. It doesn't, isn't, can't be right that soft power is not valuable. The second thing I would like to bring up on that note is now, we know Africa, balance of payment crisis, funding infrastructure, and poverty. We are seeing a closer relationship with some of the biggest economies on the continent with China, especially in infrastructure finance and cooperation around manufacturing. But geopolitically and diplomatically, how can Africa better structure its relationship, especially with the receding of American influence that we are seeing? How can Africa better structure its relationship with China so that we don't lose all these values that are clearly important to the continent, like democracy, like accountability and such? Well, I think our view has been, as, as I said, that Africa needs to have strong economic relations with every other group on the planet. So, I mean, we should be working with Brazil in areas, food in particular, uh, Nigeria and Brazil, lots of cultural ties between Brazil and Africa. We should be working with the Americans and the Canadians. We should be working with Europe, Middle East, India, uh, and I'll come back to India and China. So I don't think Africa should be choosing um choosing one group. They're all important to us, and we are important to all of them on that way. We need investment, we need an exchange of ideas, some education, we need people from those places to be part of Africa. So I don't want to have China dominate kind of the infrastructure investment. And we all know we don't need to dwell here on the problems and the challenges of the Chinese doing business in Africa. But I think the best way, in our view, for Africa to be strong in this environment is to be united. I mean, one of the things that's benefited outsiders is you have 54 countries. Nigeria is not in this case, but some of the countries are so small, it's difficult to have capacity to deal with a large power in terms of an infrastructure project or contracting or skill levels. And I think so for 
us, the AFCFTA was always a way of taking that step to being more integrated and the intra-Africa trade is critical, but it's also projecting to the outside world. I mean, all of a sudden, if you've got all of Africa working together under AFCFTA, we become the world's biggest economic bloc, at least in terms of the number of people. So bigger than the EU, obviously, bigger than China, bigger than India. Not yet in GDP, because it's still the EU, but it won't take much growth if we unlock it to then become the biggest in terms of GDP. And, of course, I said before, GDP is not always the best measure, but in this case, it gives that economic weight. So while we continue to kind of work as separate countries, you know, I don't think we're going to be able to get the right relationship with other parts of the world. But with AFCFTA and increasing kind of economic integration, I think Africa will be stronger. That's our view. And, of course, the African Union... We need to remember this is a very long-term project. So sometimes people will ask me in the press, you know, what should we be doing about AFCFTA this year? And I'm like, well, I don't think it's going to have a huge impact. I mean, this was signed in 2013. It was part of a 50-year project by the African Union, and this is one step in that journey. So we need to continue to push those steps. But in a decade, I think you'll see a transformation in kind of intra-Africa, everything, commerce, investment, social patterns, but then also the projection of Africa in the outside world. So I think we need to work on that integration to be also be able to show the outside world we're one strong united Africa. But remember, soon we'll have two billion people. As I said, we will be the biggest economic bloc on the planet if it's done properly. Yeah, that's interesting. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you, Toby. It's always a great pleasure. You can subscribe to the podcast and newsletter on untrapped.substack.com. Untrapped.substack.com. Thank you. Until next time.